Good evening. Last week on the History of Medicine, in order to illustrate the horrors that bacteria have been responsible for in the past, we talked about just one example, Yersinia pestis, the agent responsible for the Plague of Justinian, the Black Death, and millions upon millions of dead and infected. This week, I promise it'll be a little happier. We'll delve into the science just before the famous antibiotics. Unfortunately, there's a lot of ground to cover, so I won't dive too much into detail about the great scientists responsible for all of the discoveries, but there will be plenty of that in future episodes. To start off, there are a lot of claims of antibiotics before the mid-20th century, but none that are well-documented or really provable. We have old wives' tales of molds being used in folk remedies. In Greece and Serbia, moldy bread was a treatment for wounds and infection, while in Russia, farmers used warm soil. Molds are recorded as a treatment also by apothecaries in the 1600s. We have evidence of some old treatments having antibiotic properties when tested today, but almost certainly past people did not really understand why such remedies might have worked. Nothing truly scientific really comes out of this stuff until the late 19th century. As far as scientific knowledge goes at this point, we, as in people, have very little understanding of germ theory. We kind of know that microorganisms exist, and that's about it. Louis Pasteur, a chemist turned biologist, was convinced that these microorganisms were responsible for disease. In 1877, Pasteur starts investigating anthrax, which is a nasty little disease you may recognize. It's a deadly bacterial agent, and it was killing thousands of horses, oxen, sheep, and cows, which caused, as you can imagine, massive losses for farmers. Anthrax is a pretty nasty disease. Animals would be struck over the course of a few hours, victims would suffer fatigue, hemorrhage from the nose and mouth, and then die. Their bellies would appear engorged, and the blood was thick, viscous, and black. Quote, Veterinarians first thought that it was caused by poison, because if one injected a healthy animal with remnants of an anthrax victim, which, yikes, that poor animal, the healthy animal would then become infected as well. The major problem with identifying the bacteria as the agent was that there are a large number of other factors. Other scientists before Pasteur had actually observed the bacteria, but misattributed it as a symptom of the disease, or perhaps just a coincidence. Pasteur got around this with a brilliant experiment. He took a drop of anthrax-infected blood, grew the bacteria, and then diluted it. He repeated this more or less until he had a pure solution of bacteria. Upon injecting it into a healthy rabbit, it immediately died with the recognizable symptoms of anthrax. Pasteur is not the only figure at play here, but his work really solidifies germ theory at the time, and although it takes time for the whole scientific body to come around, eventually they do, and today germ theory is more or less common knowledge. Almost simultaneously, we have Joseph Lister. Joseph Lister was an English surgeon who read accounts of Pasteur's experiments involving germs in the 1860s and was inspired. He wrote, quote, we find that a flood of light has been thrown upon this most important subject by the philosophic researches of Monsieur Pasteur. Those experiments showed that microbes exist in the air, and also that they cause decay in animal matter like meat or corpses. Lister keenly noticed that the skin infections often plaguing his patients look grossly similar to rotting flesh. He figures this is probably not a coincidence, and as such, those infections are probably also the work of microbes. From there, he goes about trying to figure out how he can stop that, since infection is, you know, pretty bad for your patients. 
He does some experimentation, and he figures out that carbolic acid, otherwise known as phenol, can be used to clean wounds. This is the first known antiseptic, and it major and it made a major difference at his practice. For any kind of surface wound or abscess, the doctor would dip a cloth in the acid and then apply it to the site at hand for long periods of time, sometimes days. As you can imagine, having acid placed on your skin tends to cause a little bit of irritation, but it's definitely worth it if it means that you get to keep your arm. Unfortunately, carbolic acid is limited to surface use. As with most antiseptics, if you were to, for example, inject carbolic acid, you would just kill your patient. And so we're not quite at real antibiotics yet. Next up, we have the star of this episode, the German scientist Paul Ehrlich, working in the beginning of the 20th century. Ehrlich is a brilliant scientist, and I have no doubt that he will be a bit of a recurring character in his stories. However, we'll start at 1908, where Ehrlich, fresh off of a Nobel Prize no big deal, is exploring the body's natural immune system, and how chemicals might be able to help. He coins the term magic bullet to refer to any kind of defense that could destroy harmful agents while leaving normal cells alone, essentially the concept of modern antibiotics by a different name. He devotes his life to finding such magic bullets. Ehrlich believes that a magic bullet would be a chemical substance that could block the microorganism's metabolism in some way. Ehrlich was on the hunt for his magic bullet, but a magic bullet for what? He decided that the first one should probably be a relatively easy target, and so settled on trypanosomes, which are protozoa. Protozoa are single-celled organisms only a few hundredths of a millimeter in length, which cause a number of nasty diseases such as sleeping sickness, nagana, and chagas disease, a few of which you may have heard of. The protozoa were big, relatively easy to see, and reliably kill lab mice. It's a kind of depressing way to choose what disease to target, but I kind of have to admire his practicality. Ehrlich and a compatriot, the Japanese Kiyoshi Shiga, had a love of dyes, many of which were artificial chemical compounds. And they began testing a series of dyes on mice by infecting them with trypanosomes and then injecting them with the dyes. Now, the idea of using a dye may seem a tad strange. Why on earth would they start with dyes for investigating? But it actually does make sense with some background. Firstly, creating dyes was the most lucrative use of chemistry at the time, and the production of colors and dyes comprised pretty much most of the chemistry business, far more than producing medicine at the time. Ehrlich himself actually had a lot of experience with staining for microscopy, and he even wrote his dissertation on staining. Such stains were used to distinguish between different cells and provide contrast when examining, when examining samples under microscopy. If dyes could selectively attach to some kinds of bacteria and not others, or some kinds of cells and not others, then maybe they could be used to attack certain types of bacteria. This line of thinking actually turns out to be really fruitful. And they figured out through a lot of experimentation that a bright red dye, when injected into animals, would eliminate all signs of infection. From there, they figured out the chemical structure of that specific dye, which contains a structure called an azo group. That azo group contains nitrogen, and from there, they began to explore other elements similar to nitrogen, such as arsenic. Arsenic, you might be aware, is a poison, but chemistry is pretty complicated. If you'll recall the periodic table, arsenic is in the same column as nitrogen, and so often forms similar bonds, thus their experimentation. 
Ehrlich and Shiga began experimenting with arsenic compounds and found a number of dyes that were viable as treatments for protozoan disease, although none ever really see clinical use. They, however, lay down the foundation for modern pharmaceutical discovery by taking a chemical and then making modifications to it and experimenting further, which at a very high level is pretty much how drug discovery goes on today. Using this idea, in 1909, Ehrlich was experimenting with chemical compounds in search of a chemical to help the body's immune system target specific diseases. In this case, he was actually looking at syphilis. He mistakenly thought that trypanosomes caused it. In fact, syphilis is caused by a bacteria, and a really nasty sexually transmitted infection that was at the time extremely widespread. It has three stages, which are relatively mild early on, and then a long latent stage. It's pretty complex, so I won't go into it too much. I've already illustrated bubonic plague, which is plenty nasty already. The latter stages tend to cause more serious complications, and syphilis at the time was a huge public health burden, and so it became a priority to target, especially in Europe. Whereas most diseases caused by trypanosomes often afflicted poorer countries. They toiled at experimentation for literally years, making new chemicals with small changes, giving rabbits syphilis, and then injecting the rabbits to attempt to cure them. Finally, they were met with luck on their confusingly numbered compound 606. It's not actually the 606th compound tried. In fact, it was the 6th compound in the 6th series. I imagine they must have been overjoyed. I probably would have given up around compound 6 of the 1st series, but I guess that's why I'm writing about brilliant scientists, not out being one. This arsenic compound, known as arsphenamine, or 606, or, most commonly, Salversan, caused the dramatic disappearance of symptoms. With further experimentation, they quickly demonstrated efficacy in humans as well, and the first magic bullet was found. By 1910, doctors were globally giving their syphilis patients Salversan, and reporting the miraculous curative effects. However, they also reported some pretty serious side effects. By 1914, just five years later, there were actually 109 deaths attributed to Salversan treatments recorded in the medical literature. Even the lesser side effects besides death are still... Even the lesser side effects besides death are still pretty unpleasant, and include such lovely things such as liver damage, rashes, nausea, and vomiting. Administering Salversan was also a giant pain. It was distributed as a yellow powder that was uh, not stable in uh, air, and as such, you had to store it very carefully. That powder then had to be dissolved in sterile water, again, without much exposure to air, and a lot of it. We're talking about a pint and a quarter of water per treatment that you had to inject into the patient's body. So imagine shooting uh, a little bit more than a standard water bottle into your arm. That solution could be injected two ways. One is into the muscles or under the skin, which both hurt really badly. Or you can do it intravenously. But, at this time of history, that's not a very common procedure. And so providers don't really know how to do that very well. This whole process has to be done for at least 18 months, usually comprising 20 or more injections. Again, all of which was unpleasant. All this led to mistakes, and it's actually thought that mishandling may have worsened the problems with side effects. Ehrlich continued to experiment with compounds, and in 1914, as he turned 60, compound 914, to be known as neoarsphenamine, was discovered. It was slightly less toxic, and it acted a little bit quicker, so that you could cut down on a couple of injections. 
Even besides medical issues, the distribution of Salversan was actually met with resistance from religious institutions, most notably the Russian Orthodox Church, usually under the belief that sexually transmitted diseases, such as syphilis, were divine punishment for immorality. And as such, treating patients with syphilis was against God's will. Even if one didn't believe that we should treat syphilis, it certainly carried significant stigma in less extreme circles, which made it even more difficult to diagnose and treat such patients. Despite these setbacks, Selversan sold with the slogan, quote, the arsenic that saves, was the first drug of its kind. And it sold like hotcakes, if hotcakes could cure your previously untreatable, debilitating, and ultimately deadly disease. By the end of the year, it was the most prescribed drug in the world. In 1923, 2 million doses of Salversan were produced in the U.S. alone. Keep in mind that at the time, those side effects were worth it, and Salversan was still a lot easier on the body than the existing treatments of the time. Prior to Salversan, there were two common treatments for syphilis. One was useless, being the resin from a Caribbean tree known as guaicum. Not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. The other was about as dangerous as the disease itself, mercury in various forms. Predictably, the side effects of mercury are extra bad and include ulcers, loss of teeth, and death. Mercury is a powerful killer of bacteria, being about 50 times more effective than Lister's carbolic acid from earlier, but it obviously causes a lot of other problems. Paul Ehrlich was often quoted as saying that to achieve success, one needs the four Gs. Take note that these are Gs in German, so I don't really know how to pronounce these, but here goes. Gelt, Gedois, Geschick, and Gluck. Translated to money, patience, intelligence, and luck. Evidently, Ehrlich had all four of these, and his success is well-deserved. He was known to be a perfectionist and very methodical in his experimentation, which led to the first man-made antibiotic, even if it was a very, very specific antibiotic. I think his story isn't often heard of, and I know I certainly hadn't heard of him before my research, but he deserves a lot of credit. Even besides Salverson, he established the modern model for discovering new synthetic compounds, and he discovered drug resistance, which we'll certainly come back to. He was nominated in 1912 and 13 for his discoveries for Nobel Prizes, and I hope that in telling his story, we can honor his memory a little bit better. Although he did find the first magic bullet of its kind, his magic bullet, if you'll notice, is very, very specific, targeting literally only syphilis. Ehrlich provided massive stepping stones for the scientists after him, but Salversan alone was not enough to revolutionize medicine which is probably why Ehrlich doesn't get quite as famous as some of the other scientists we'll talk about. Next week, though, the antibiotic revolution gets going. In particular, one Gerard Domag makes a vital discovery and discovers a new class of drugs. I hope you've enjoyed our time together. Feel free always to reach out, especially with feedback at our Facebook page, our website, or my email here, historyofmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. If you feel up to it, please leave me a review on whatever platform you're listening. Good reviews will help me find more listeners, and bad reviews will help me improve the show. Thanks to Muse Open for our theme music, Angie Lee for our cover art, and to you, as always, for listening.